0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the new American success story in which liars and cheats can make it all the way to the presidency of the United States, and tomorrow a spectacular liar and brazen fraud will be sworn in as a congressman. Joining us as a new year begins to discuss what has happened to the nation's moral and ethical standards is Ruth ben ghiat an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy where she hosted a Q&A on Sunday, George Santos as outcome of Trump remaking GOP in his own image. Then with two durable dictatorships, Russia and Iran, forming an alliance in waging a war against Ukraine, we'll look into how Putin stays in power as catastrophic losses of Russian soldiers pile up and how the Ayatollahs hold on to power in Iran in the face of a youthful revolution led by women that has spread to all walks of life across the country. Joining us is Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His books include Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and How Democracies Die, and we'll discuss his latest book, co-authored with Luke and Wei, Revolution and Dictatorship, the Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. Then finally, following a hearing last week before the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties on the threat of white Christian nationalism, we will speak with Dr. Bradley Anishi, a scholar of religion and the co-host of the Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Review of Books and Religion and Politics, among others, And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is out tomorrow, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism, and What Comes Next. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our many sustaining listeners and donors, whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing over the past year has maintained our commercial-free independence as we build our online podcast audience broadcast on a growing number of stations nationwide expand our production team create a new home for our nonprofit foundation at publictruthmedia.org and make sure every program remains available to all with no paywalls if you haven't yet and are able to make a monthly contribution visit backgroundbriefing.org/donate where your tax deductible contributions large and small enable us to provide you with a daily briefing on important issues in the news as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Ruth Ben-Guard, who is an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and the recipient of Guggenheim, Fulbright and other fellowships and an advisor to Protect Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN and MSNBC and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where she hosted a Q&A on Sunday, George Santos as outcome of Trump remaking GOP in his image. Welcome to Background Briefing, Ruth Ben-Ghiat.
1: Thank you.
0: So, Ruth, I wonder, I think about what children are taught and what they see from what's happening to this country. You know, the new American success story is one in which liars and cheats can make it all all the way to the presidency of the United States. And tomorrow, this extraordinary liar and this brazen fraud, George Santos, will be sworn in as a Republican congressman. So what kind of message does that send to our kids?
1: Well, it, it, I mean, it sends a, a terrible message, but it's a logical outcome of having uh, someone uh, like Trump, who's a criminal in many, many ways, and has lied and cheated his entire uh, career. Let's remember that he was under investigation for fraud when he ran for president in two thousand sixteen, and and so when when an autocrat, autocratic-minded leader takes over a party. They reshape it in their own image, and so really, Trump's values and methods have become the GOP's. And indeed, <laughs> the party embraced the big lie—that's lying—and um, you know is is fully enmeshed in uh, in a cover up of their conspiracy to help overturn the election, which is a defrauding of the American people, and the violent assault on the Capitol. So the GOP, in its practice now. Uh, is a lying and fraudulent party. And so in a way, um, as I'm arguing in this essay that's going to publish tomorrow, uh, George Santos fits right in.
0: Well, in terms of cheating, I mean, we've just seen the release of Trump's taxes and all these secret accounts he had abroad. A lot of money was funneled through Azerbaijan, which of course is is a real black hole in terms of politics and international finance. And, he, of course, he's friendly with some of the, the oligarchs from Azerbaijan, as it happens. Interesting enough, the leak of these documents has created a backlash with the GOP, and now the Republicans are threatening to cut the extra funding that Biden managed to get for the IRS, the $82 billion extra, so that they could actually make the very wealthy in this country pay their taxes when we have such rampant inequality. So there you have the GOP legitimizing not paying taxes and essentially celebrating Trump's being a tax cheat.
1: Yeah, well, that's also part of the GOP's embrace of, of autocracy, really. They, this party has exited democracy, and this is the big drama that we have, that we have a bipartisan system, unlike a lot of other places in the world. Only got two parties, and if one party... <laughs> Exits democracy no longer upholds accountability, transparency is just nakedly um, pursuing plunder, um, you know, of the environment, plunder of the economy, benefits of only the rich, minoritarian rule. What? How do you govern? And so, the new Congress will will come in, and there'll be George Santos sitting there. With uh, kindred spirits, you know, one third of the house will be election deniers, and a lot of these people are are again they share these other attitudes. Um, they don't want the rich to pay taxes. They don't want to have the environment uh, bettered. In fact, Mike Pence a few weeks ago uh, had a, a tweet where he said, "I hope that this, you know, climate change hearing is the last we ever have." Because they want to plunder the environment. That's what Bolsonaro, who's now in Florida uh, after he had to flee Brazil, uh, he tried to do the same thing. He plundered. He did plunder the the Amazon. So this is what they're about.
0: Well, Santos, of course, uh, we're starting to learn. It looks as if the mystery about where his money came from, and he lied about working for Citigroup and Goldman Sachs, etc., and lied about everything and invented his family connections to the Holocaust and his own f- connections to the slaughter of, at a nightclub down in Florida, uh, even had a charity for you know, rescuing little puppy dogs, which all the money pocketed. But it turns out that he's made a lot of trips recently to Russia, and his campaign was in part financed by uh, relatives of, uh, of a sanctioned uh, Russian oligarch, uh, Vexenberg, But the most alarming thing that about this character, to my mind, was that he was at that recent gathering of the New York Republicans at which Marjorie Taylor Greene made the outrageous keynote speech in which she said that if she and Steve Bannon had planned January the 6th, they would have done it better and, and they would have been armed. And he was there cheering them along. So that's the work that you do, Ruth. So this guy's hanging out with American and European fascists and fascist sympathizers. So how low can you go?
1: Well, he was also at January 6th at the rally, and he also um, claimed that he uh, wanted to, he offered to or did help insurrectionists with their legal bills. As we'll know more and more, he is is the whole range of the GOP today, Um, you know, campaign funded by, uh, the bagman and relative of a Russian oligarch, check, um, uh, making declarations that are echoing Kremlin talking points, check. He called Ukraine a totalitarian regime. He said they should welcome Russia uh, into their provinces. That's a quote from a tweet. Um, and he, you know, he, and really, the, one of the interesting things from the point of view of um, charismatic authoritarians and personality cults is he, if you take all of his lies about himself together, they conform to this thing that Trump did, too, of trying to be all things to all people. And one of the unusual things about these characters is from Mussolini onward. Mussolini was a total atheist, but he was the one who made the deal with the Vatican. And they say different things to different people, and they can be what everyone wants them to be. So, to appeal to African-Americans, he said he was part black. To appeal to Jews, he was Jewish. He had grandparents who escaped the Holocaust. To appeal to Islamophobes, his mother died on 9-11. He had something for everyone. And, and this is how Trump was as well. Um, and, and so as we know more and more about Santos and put him in context, which is what I tried to do, um, look at the logic of how somebody like this can be supported by a party, can come to be and come to have a political career. Um, we see that he fits the bill of the, the new GOP very well.
0: Well, one of the things I recall about nine eleven was on that very day uh, when the building came down, and the day the 3,000 Americans perished in the most horrible way, Donald Trump went on local New York TV and bragged about the fact that now the towers have gone down, my building is the tallest on Wall Street. I mean, are these people, as well as being fascist sympathizers or neo-fascists or whatever you want to label them, are they also sociopaths? I mean, that would seem to be obvious.
1: Yeah, I'm not a psychologist or psychiatrist, but, um, you know, he he he's a, this person is a serial liar. And, you know, in a way you have to say George Santos, uh, between quotes, because he's a construct. And there we go back to uh, being everything that you think people want you to be. And, and that's, whether that's sociopathy, or, it's, or narcissism, or whatever we're going to call it, it's not, um it's somebody who is a con man, it goes with the con man personality. And I think, It's maybe in the conclusion of Strong Men, I write that authoritarians have a lot in common with con men. (laughs) Um, They get millions of people to believe that they love them and they're doing well by them. And in fact, they despise them and they're plundering them. Um, So it's all very sad. And uh, that this person is uh, being seated in Congress is a scandal. But the bigger scandal is that one-third of the House is going to be election deniers, and they're sitting there too. So he's in good company. He's found his tribe.
0: Well, Kevin McCarthy hasn't said a damn thing about him, right? He, he needs his vote, doesn't he? I mean, that's how, how low they've sunk.
1: Yeah, he needs his vote, but you could say that that's typical politicking. What isn't typical politicking is, is they... There are Republicans who are going to make an example of Santos, like Tulsi Gabbard, who hauled him on you know, Fox News and eviscerated him, but failed to say that he was there on January 6. So, you know, those Republicans who, even if they do speak out, they all know that they can't touch certain subjects, which is the giant criminality of having stage a coup attempt, which none of them have any remorse for. Um, and you just yourself said you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene talks about uh, doing it all over again and doing it better so it would succeed
0: with arms yes well and of course Tulsi Gabbard didn't bring up the Russian connections since no. she herself is clearly I don't know whether she's on Putin's payroll but short of that she's a, one of the useful idiots along with Tucker Carlson that parrot uh, Kremlin talking points
1: yeah and that's why she's been able to uh, occasionally fill in for Tucker Carlson, who does the same thing. That's that's a very pointed substitution that Tucker Carlson is making, and I think this this brings up a point. We it's it's a sobering point. But and I've been trying to get people to see the GOP um, as an autocratic party embedded in foreign far right networks for a long time. Um, the same as. Very early, I tried to get people to see Trump as an authoritarian, and people were like, well, that's not something we have here. But now we do have it here. And the GOP truly is, look at the you know adulation for Orban, who comes to CPAC. Um, Giorgio Meloni, the neo-fascist prime minister of Italy, is very involved with the GOP and sees them as a kindred spirit. So I think the sooner we accept that um, many, many of these people, in Santos again—he's got his own Russian connections, um, and who knows what else. It's it's a it's a kind of new global right, and the GOP is a hub of it.
0: Well, we've seen how incredibly yeah. effective Putin's investment in Brexit was; basically paralyzed the UK to this day. So they do very well with you know rather small investments, but just in terms of Santos obviously there's some buyer's remorse now in Nassau County. A lot of the voters are feeling burned. The guy that, that ran against him, uh, the Democrat, was obviously, he was a kind of country club rich guy, I thought it would be a cakewalk for him. He has a background, by the way, in, in opposition research. So why? why? My understanding is that the C hired a bunch of interns to do opposition research. So the Democrats definitely dropped the ball. But There's no bias, remorse, as far as I can say, in this country, at least not enough, amongst Trump's base. And what explains that, uh, Ruth? Why are they still sticking with this guy when every day more and more evidence comes out about his criminality and eventually, I think, his treachery?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, And it has to do with the psychology of these leader-follower bonds. And it's it's been like this, uh, uh, the world around, for a hundred years. When, once these people bond with these characters, they stick with them till the bitter end. And they, in, and it takes. Well, it took in Italy and, and Germany. It took being bombed by the Allies. That and now there you had, of course, a one-party, you know, one-party dictatorship, highly repressive environment. But it was only when the bombing started, 1942-43, that. Larger numbers of people started to curse Hitler and Mussolini in public, and the personality cult started to fray. So here we are in a, it's all the more extraordinary because we're in an open society. <clears throat> Trump did not, you know, make a dictatorship. We have a pluralistic media environment. And yet he got these people right, with loyalty oaths, telling them he loved them, America first, MAGA. He got them to have this undying loyalty to him this undying bond and it's stuck through thick and thin and he's been very skilled at using the usual autocrat tools of the victimhood he's it's a witch hunt against him and so they're very good at making people feel protective of them as though they are vulnerable Um, and that's what the big lie did it allowed it allowed his followers to put off seeing him as a loser He was the winner and he was unjustly robbed of what was rightfully his.
0: So as bad as Trump is, and you and I have had a number of conversations about the horror of this man, and how you'd have to scour this country to find a human being worse than him. And I don't, I think he'd have a hard time literally finding a human being worse (laughs) than him. Yet he became president of the United States. So how do we deal with that? What's even worse, I think are the Kevin McCarthys and the Mitch McConnells. You know, the traditional Republicans, if that's not being too kind a description, why aren't they standing up? What kind of moral cowardice is at play here to allow this grotesquery to continue? And, of course, tomorrow is going to be an absolute disgrace as they swear this guy in and McCarthy cravenly begs for votes from the lunatic fringe
1: yeah, it's it's a very sad, you know syndrome, but it's one that's very familiar to me, studying uh, authoritarians uh, who who intimidate, who threaten, who co- co-opt, who corrupt people. And the goal of somebody like Trump is to make everyone be their worst self worst selves possible and lower the bar. Um, And that's what I meant in the beginning, that their values become the party's values. So McCarthy, I'm always haunted by this, you know, before Trump had the nomination back in 2016, when it all could have been avoided, he knew, and he said to Paul Ryan in a closed door meeting, I think Putin pays Trump. And because he said that, and Trump heard that he said that, um, he had to become to have any kind of career. He had to shut up about that entirely, and he had to become the biggest lackey of all. And he's done that very, very successfully um, up to this day. But so that decision and that change in him was made early on, precisely because he 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 was a threat because he he voiced even if it was only to Paul Ryan in a private meeting, he. He had the guts to say what other people were only thinking. I think Putin pays Trump. Um, and look at the change.
0: Well, Ruth Benged, I thank you so much for joining us here. And I hope, even though we're starting out the new year with this depressing reality of the Republican Party, that the, there are some better angels out there that will emerge. It can't be another year of Trump. I don't want to talk about him anymore, and I'm sure you don't.
1: Well, he, he has lost a lot of support, and uh, Ron DeSantis, who, it's a different conversation, he's he's equally extreme, but uh, there may be more and more movement away from Trump in the coming year.
0: But with DeSantis, that's out of the frying pan into the fire, isn't it? It
1: is. It is. Um, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, <laughs> I thank you for joining us. I appreciate it. Ruth. It's a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Ruth Benguet, an historian who writes about authoritarianism, democracy protection, and propaganda. She's a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University and the recipient of the Guggenheim Fulbright and Other Fellowships and an advisor to Project Democracy. She's also an MSNBC opinion columnist, a regular contributor to CNN and The Washington Post, and provides live commentary on CNN, MSNBC, and other networks. Her latest book is Strong Men, Mussolini to the present, and she publishes Lucid, a newsletter on threats to democracy, where she hosted a Q&A on Sunday, George Santos as outcome of Trump remaking GOP in his image. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking into the durability of dictatorships, as in the case of Russia, Putin holds on to power in spite of catastrophic losses in the war in Ukraine, and the Ayatollahs hold on to power in Iran in the face of a youthful revolution.
2: Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender A dream
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Stephen Levitsky, a professor of government and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His books include Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and How Democracies Die. And his latest book, co-authored with Lucan Way, is Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. Welcome to Background Briefing, Stephen Levitsky. Thanks for having me. So in terms of durable authoritarianism or durable dictatorships, Russia and Iran have formed an alliance in waging a war against Ukraine. And we've just seen from the recent headlines out of Ukraine that the Russians suffered enormous casualties. Hundreds were killed in one missile strike. And you wonder how, in the face of these catastrophic losses, does Putin hold on to power? And the same is true in in Iran, where the Ayatollahs hold on to power is, you know, how do do they do it in the face of this youthful revolution led by these brave young women? And apparently the the revolution has spread to all walks of life across the country. So those are the two examples I'd like to start with.
3: Sure. Uh, I think the two cases are somewhat different, and, um, you know, in Iran, obviously the, the... we haven't seen the, the um, final acts of this play yet. The This is a, a, a pretty robust opposition challenge, and um, the regime's survival is by no means secured. Now, Russia is a—we're uh, we're only indirectly seeing the legacies of a revolutionary regime. We argue in, in, in our book that regimes that are born—dictatorships that are born of violent revolution tend to be— pretty robust for several reasons. Um, And Iran is directly a revolutionary regime It's born out of the 1979 revolution. uh, And that has given the regime a robustness to a whole series of challenges, international isolation, a devastating war with Iraq in the 1980s, the death of of founding uh, leader Ayatollah Khomeini in 1989, terrible economic crisis and a series of protests beginning with the green revolution protests in 2009 another massive series of protests in 2019 and then again uh today so the the regime um is now 40 plus years old and has survived a a a series of difficult challenges the russian regime is a little more complicated because the putin regime is not born of violent social revolution the so the soviet union was born of violent social revolution that would turned out to be in the 20th century, one of the most long-lived dictatorships in in the modern world, uh, but it collapsed. And the, so Putin draws on a couple of legacies of the the of the the old revolutionary state. One of them is a utter and complete destruction of alternative power centers under the Soviet Union, uh, which a legacy of which is a very very weak civil society even today. And the second thing that Putin benefits from is a very extensively developed coercive apparatus, which was only partially dismantled after the collapse of the Soviet Union. So Putin is obviously not directly – this is is not a revolutionary regime, but he does benefit from a couple of legacies of the revolutionary regime.
0: So in terms of China, I was really struck by the spontaneous demonstrations that happened in China – as a result of people being burned alive in a building because of the stringent uh, COVID lockdowns. And you get the feeling that, even though it's it's the most ubiquitous surveillance state on the planet, that there's a sort of independent spirit amongst the Chinese people. You know, we saw the young Chinese students at Tiananmen and also in Hong Kong as well. But then we saw right across the country, people spontaneously... Uh, demonstrating and even now Xi Jinping is hinting that maybe he'll let people blow off a little steam every now and then. So what's the difference there in terms of Russia and China? Is it to do with the kind of culture, the people, their sense of either yearning for freedom or a sense of passivity?
3: Uh, I would be cautious about making any generalizations about the culture or the people. Societies go through periods of protest, unrest, contestation, also periods of relative acquiescence or passivity uh, in ways that we can't always predict. Um, And so there's no reason, at least in my mind, why we might not at some point could be a month from now. It could be six years from now. It could be 20 years from now. See, uh, a period of contestation and protest in uh, in Russia, as we've seen in other post-Soviet states at times, and as we've seen erupt seemingly out of nowhere in parts of the Arab world a decade ago. Um, so I don't think there's anything in, the, in Russian society that that, um, that necessarily makes them passive. This is a regime where uh, where civil society was was essentially defanged for three quarters of a century. It's a regime in which the state has an awful lot of economic power. So the state's ability to affect people's daily lives, uh, even to shut off the heat, to deprive people of, of, of jobs and other opportunities is, is quite high, which weakens civil society. It's also a place where the economy has been, until pretty recently, has been pretty strong Um And the state has had a lot of resources, thanks to the export of of oil and gas. The state has had a lot of resources to buy a certain amount of of acquiescence. But none of that, none of that uh, assures that there won't be protests in the future. Uh, In the Chinese case, I mean, China is reaching a point, a level of development, a level of urbanization, education, wealth, where in other societies elsewhere in the world, whether it be Spain or Portugal or Argentina or South Africa or South Korea, you've begun to see protests. This is why a lot of uh, many scholars, at least until recently, had anticipated that if China continued to develop and continued to modernize and and increase level of, of, of education and wealth, that you would see a more demanding society. That was the expectation of many, many scholars. And it was it was surprising to many scholars that over the last decade, last fifteen years, uh, the, the the Chinese Communist Party has been able to to really quell um, potential opposition so successfully. So we're, this is a, this is a, a, a level at which we should expect a more demanding society. I think it's still an opening an open question whether the regime has the mix of both economic carrots because um, that, that you know chinese citizens have have done quite well and individuals uh who get education have have been able to uh get a lot of their demands and expectations met by the regime over the last 20 or 30 years um or whether the, this sort of mix of repression and opportunity will will not be enough and whether they'll the the regime will face greater challenge. I don't think we know, but this is a a government, the Chinese Communist Party government is unusually well-equipped to deal with a demanding society. It's got a strong economy. It's got a very effective surveillance capacity, as you mentioned, uh, and it's got pretty responsive institutions as far as autocracies go. Most autocracies are really obtuse. Most autocracies don't listen to society well. And relative to most autocracies, including the Russian one, this is a pretty responsive regime.
0: So, in your new book, Stephen Levitsky, "Revolution and Dictatorship: The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism," you analyze thirteen revolutionary regimes, including the Soviet Union, Iran, Vietnam, Algeria, Cuba, etc. What about the factor, for the want of a better description, the simple exhaustion that people feel, uh, like in Zimbabwe, which is a was ruled for the longest time, by a despot, Robert Mugabe. And his assassin, his hitman, the Crocodile, named the Crocodile because he threw all of Mugabe's opponents, fed them to the Crocodiles, he's now in charge. And the place is a complete catastrophe. It's been a basket case for decades. The people are just starving, their money's worthless and And a similar situation, not as grave as also happened in Venezuela, where I think a, well, something like almost a third of the country of people have just left. Is that a factor in other words, to dictators, even if their regimes are ruinous, the ruin tends to make them durable
3: That's not a universal law um that it- Exhaustion with a regime and 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 bottoming out spectacularly poor performance, as you see, and I think you point to the the best two cases in Zimbabwe and venezuela that that can cut both ways it can lead um to discontent um often a fracturing of the regime uh meaning somebody in the regime decides enough is enough and uh uh, and pushes for change. And when, and when regime elites split, regimes often become vulnerable to collapse. You saw this, for example, um, uh, not quite as much of a case as bottoming out, but Serbia in 2000 was a was a disaster, it was a mess, and, and you got the overthrow of, of Milosevic. So it's not always the case that if you... This is not a recipe for success for autocrats to bottom out into the worst possible outcome. But you are right that there are cases where things get so bad that a couple of things happen that um people are the, the economy is so bad that people are sh- so many people are sh- either struggling to survive and so um forced to dedicate so much time and energy to sheer survival that they cannot organize and protest or or and or the most discontented and able people all leave the country. And you're right, almost a third of Venezuela's population has, has departed, and so uh, this happened in Cuba as well. And it's happening in Cuba again today, that when, when there's an exit, op- an exit option for opposition or for potential opponents, that um, kind of paradoxically strengthens regime, right? If people who are likely to rise up in protest leave for Miami instead, then um then that can strengthen the regime, so you're absolutely right that in venezuela and in um and, and in Zimbabwe, things got so bad that the opposition basically w- was exhausted and um and, and that sort of perversely strengthened the regime but it's not it, it, it's not in the opening chapters of the autocratic playbook it 's a pretty risky Strategy, destroying your country's economy um, is, a, is a really risky strategy. In fact, there's a pretty strong relationship between economic performance and authoritarian durability. You're much, much better off being Singapore and China and Vietnam and governing over a, a pretty prosperous or growing economy as an autocrat than you are plunging your economy into the worst possible disaster. So it's true that it worked as a survival strategy in Zimbabwe and in Venezuela, it doesn't work most of the time.
0: Well, how much is it working in Russia, though, given that so many talented young Russians have fled because of the... Yeah. T- big well, I think d- it's too d-
3: early to d- tell. Right. Um, the, the, Russia's economy was in... W- rebounded very, very successful in the early part of the 21st century. It had been a total disaster, one of the world's uh, worst economic collapses in the 1990s. And the rebound, particularly in uh, reinforced by by very high fuel energy prices, led uh, Putin had a, quite a bit of public of genuine public support uh, for well over a decade in the early 21st century because Russia was doing relatively well. It's only pretty recently that the now with, with in international sanctions and the cost of the war that Russia is really suffering. But. Putin also benefits, it's very hard to measure this, at least from the outside, but Putin probably has benefited from some rally around the flag effect. Usually when countries go to war, for at least some period of time, there is um, some rallying around the flag. You see this just about everywhere on earth. Um, so I think it's too early to tell what the effect of this disaster will be. But I I would venture a guess that given... Um, how much harder this war of choice of Putin's has made life for many or probably most Russians, uh, young men who don't want to go to war, families who are uh, either worried about or losing loved ones, and, of course, uh, all sorts of economic opportunities now uh, being stripped away. I think it's pretty safe to say that this is going to generate a fair amount of discontent, that that Putin is, in terms of his own status— the the security of his government, um, he was on much, much stronger footing before he went to war in Ukraine than he is now.
0: So we have in this country, of course, Elon Musk has taken over Twitter and these powerful social media platforms like Twitter and particularly Facebook are where most people get their political information. And I mean, you, you could make the case that Elon Musk has essentially spent $44 billion to own the libs, but when you have those tools like Facebook and Twitter in the the hands of dictators like Putin and Xi, I mean, we were all so excited about the Arab Spring and how it broke out in Egypt, and social media tools were used for for good, if you will. But now it looks as if dictators have figured out that they can be equally powerful, if not more powerful, to use them for ill
3: yeah, I mean I, I'm not sure how much is new there. I mean, new media technologies are always a a challenge for uh for existing regimes and they usually end up being double-edged. Um radio, television, newspapers, uh and, and social media. And it, it's certainly true that initially they seemed to be um quite liberating because it, they they made it um First of all, much, much easier for citizens and autocracies to gain access to information. And secondly, crucially, they enabled people – they facilitated collective action uh, in ways that were unimaginable before. And that's what we saw, for example, with the, with the Arab Spring. And th- th- that remains true. But autocrats learn. And again, technologies can almost always be used for both good and evil. They can be used for democratic or democratizing but also authoritarian purposes – and autocrats one learn how to control existing media technologies and then eventually not only regulate them but but put them to um to ill use um but again it work it works both ways it's 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 never simply always for good or always for for ill
0: so stephen Levitsky just in the last couple of minutes then what foreign policy then could the u s government craft around what you and Luke have and brought to the table with your new book, Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. In other words, can you give some advice to Blinken in terms of what he should be doing about Russia and particularly what he should be doing about Iran?
3: Uh, those are tough. Um, if I had uh, good answers, I'd have a much, much better paying job, I think. Um Listen, I mean from our book there there are a couple of, of lessons. I mean some some of the United States' most spectacular foreign policy failures in the twentieth century had to do with revolutionary regimes. Not so much Russia, but think about Vietnam, Cuba, Iran. Those are pretty spectacular failures. Um I think a couple of lessons can be can be drawn. Um one if you're going to get if you're going to stop a revolutionary regime it's probably best to nip it in the bud um to to destroy a regime before it consolidates and um you know one case of that arguably is the um is the initial regime in 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 Afghanistan the Taliban which is just uh, initially destroyed at least uh by the US invasion in the early 2000s another case arguably, is the uh, Islamic State, which was in a very embryonic proto-form um, in the early part of the 21st century and was effectively destroyed. Um, not clear whether it had a, it, it had any real chance of consolidating, but that's a case, arguably, of a sort of preemptive destruction of a revolutionary state. The, uh, because once the regime begins to take hold a very aggressive stance reinforces elite cohesion. One of the things that allows revolutionary regimes to survive is the entire ruling elite is, closes ranks, when uh, authoritarian regimes break down when they split internally, when the elite divides. So if the elite closes ranks, it has a very, very good chance of success, even when it's failing, like in Zimbabwe. And what Us policy towards revolutionary regimes in Vietnam, in Iran, in Cuba, even in Nicaragua, what it did was um, create a very powerful existential threat for the regime, which led the regime to close ranks. So the U.S. aggression against Cuba clearly helped to solidify the regime in the 1960s and 1970s. Different, more complicated story in Vietnam because of the war in the South, but also the war with with Vietnam helped to... to, uh, reinforced cohesion, and the same thing in uh, in Iran. So a once a regime is in place, a, a hard-line strategy against it, unless you're going to kill it, unless you're going to destroy the regime, invade and occupy Cuba and overthrow Castro, a threatening, uh, a, a very hostile, aggressive policy is probably going to reinforce elite cohesion, which will strengthen the regime, will sort of backfire. I don't think that that, that offers blink in any strategy towards Putin but
0: but you've given a pretty solid historical proof there and I thank you for joining us uh, Stephen Levitsky
3: it was a pleasure thanks for having me
0: And again, I've been speaking with Stephen Levitsky, who is a professor of government and director of the Center for Latin American Studies at Harvard University. His books include Competitive Authoritarianism, Hybrid Regimes After the Cold War, and How Democracies Die. And his latest book, co-authored with Lucan Way, is Revolution and Dictatorship, The Violent Origins of Durable Authoritarianism. We're going to take a brief station break, back looking into the threat of white Christian nationalism, which was the subject of hearings last week before the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Bradley Anishi, who is a scholar of religion and the co-host of Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times, Los Angeles Review of Books, and Religion and Politics, among other outlets. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is out tomorrow, Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Bradley Onishi.
4: Thanks for having me. Great to be here.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Bradley. And last week, the House Oversight Subcommittee on Civil Rights and Civil Liberties held its seventh and last hearing on the threat of white Christian nationalism. And... Also, it's interesting to note that there's been some complaints from faith leaders about the recently released 845-page document released by the January 6th Committee on their hearings, which basically doesn't even mention the threat of Christian nationalism as it manifested itself on January 6th on the insurrection. Actually, it mentions it uh, exactly once and only in passing. So let's start with the House Oversight Subcommittee. What's your sense of whether this is a clear and present danger as we enter the year 2023? And we know that some of these rabid white Christian nationalists in the Congress, particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene, are playing an outsized role because Kevin McCarthy, the incoming speaker, desperately needs their vote.
4: It very much is a clear and present danger, and I think we can see that in the people that we think often of, unfortunately, like Marjorie Taylor Greene and other people who are front and center uh, in Congress and in uh, our uh, other forms of leadership. I think we can also see it in churches and other movements uh, uh, around the country. Uh, I have uh, been doing an audio series on the New Apostolic Reformation, which some people may have heard of, but This is a group of people who mobilized millions of Christians ahead of January 6th to think of the election as illegitimate, to think of Donald Trump as the rightful president, and encouraged the leaders, encouraged them to uh, be at D.C. if they could on that fateful day. And if they couldn't, uh, they encouraged them to support those who would be. Uh, We reported earlier today on our show that some of them even met uh, at the White House uh, in the week ahead of January 6th and uh, were uh, given access, I shall say uh, to uh, Trump White House officials. So uh, this threat continues uh, those who helped to instigate the insurrection uh, were not re- held responsible and their white Christian nationalist supporters uh, are still fighting the fight of the big lie and the desire to take back the country and their mind for God. And so here we are.
0: But then why did the January 6th committee not, Talk about this key component in the uh, insurrection. You you saw the flags and it's pretty clear that there was a strong component of white Christian nationalism there and yet they didn't mention it or barely mentioned it in their 845-page document and one of the key members of the committee, uh, Adam Kinzinger, is himself an evangelical who's incredibly outspoken in his criticism of white Christian nationalism.
4: So I have uh, maintained that the January 6th Select Committee uh, has been a a beneficial endeavor uh, for our country. It has helped keep January 6th and its various uh, actors and networks front and center. But the lack of mention of Christian nationalism uh, is a grand failure uh, when it comes to their report and to their investigation. Uh, For those of us, scholars of religion and journalists who have studied this, Uh, The religious dimensions of January 6th are, as you say, in front and center, Uh, the flags, the symbols, the uh, Bible verses. They're all there, Uh, not to mention the prayer gatherings, the worship song singing and uh, so on and so forth. And as I just mentioned, not to not to overlook the organizing factors, the way that those Christian nationalist leaders rallied their supporters to be there on that day. My suspicion is that the committee is fearing backlash and also that there are members of the committee uh, who do not want to face down the real threat that there are Christians, and let me just be honest, that there are white Christians in the United States who pose a danger to our democracy. There's a sense of Christian privilege here where uh, if this were another religious group, if if there were uh, uh, Muslim leaders who, spouted violent rhetoric about the need to battle uh, evil forces in our country, uh, we would see a much different uh, approach, if you ask me.
0: Well, I find it extraordinary that, I mean, I, going back to Ronald Reagan's election, where he defeated Jimmy Carter, who is, is a genuine evangelical Christian. He teaches Sunday school. He's a real serious not to use too much of a pejorative, but a serious Bible basher, you know. So, and yet they voted for a twice-divorced Hollywood actor, and not this guy, the Christian right. And then at the rally, Trump basically put a target on Mike Pence, and, and nobody's more Christian than Mike Pence. He, you know, he prays all the time, you know, in his office, and he's very devout. And yet Trump summoned the mob, put a target on his back. They erected a scaffold to hang him. And frankly, and I talked to a legal scholar the other day who was clerked for Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. He pointed out that Trump either wanted his vice president murdered or would have been happy with the result because Trump would have then been able to appoint his flunky as a vice president and make sure that the election wouldn't be certified. So this is the level of obscenity that we have in this country in the name of Christianity. So I guess it's a long-winded question. Why do authentic Christians like Jimmy Carter, why are they tossed aside? Is it as simple as this, Bradley, that white Christian evangelicalism is just a front for right-wing politics?
4: I don't think it's that simple, but I do think it it, the the case of Jimmy Carter and uh, and also the case of Mike Pence are good examples of the fact that if we stay with Carter. uh, There's no doubting his identity with white evangelicalism, he is a born and raised Southern Baptist a rural farmer a Sunday school teacher, as you said, a military officer he married his high school sweetheart. Uh, It's like he was built in a lab uh, when it comes to this kind of profile And, and yet. His politics didn't line up with their agenda. And so what that example shows us is that it's not a matter of identity or piety. It's a matter of power, that you are there to help us accomplish our goals when it comes to abortion, when it comes to foreign wars, the military, immigration, and so on. I think the other answer, and this is where we might get to Mike Pence, is that in the wake of the Obama years, the religious right, turned from a group that uh, talked about winning uh, back America by way of voting and persuasion, by way of hearts and minds and prayer, to a group that dropped those, uh, those pretenses and determined to take the country back any way possible. And Trump was the perfect guy because he's not a Christian. And therefore, he's not held back by Christian virtue. He's not going to need to act like a Christian man. He's not going to need to say the right Christian things like Pence or Rubio or, or Ted Cruz might, Mike Huckabee. He's a barbarian. He's a brutal, brutal leader who they knew, they intuited would do anything needed to punish and oppress and marginalize their enemies. And when Mike Pence wouldn't do what they wanted on that day, he became their enemy. And so if you look closely at those gallows, I, I chronicle this in my book, there are Bible verses written uh, on the gallows, uh, justifying the, the the attempted murder of a Christian vice president named Mike Pence. And to me, those two factors are very important in this whole equation.
0: So Bradley, as this year begins, is this going to be, and we started out talking about it as a clear and present danger, but... You know, there are indications, for example, that young Americans are drifting away from Christianity, and I think good reasons, looking at these televangelists, they have nothing to do with what the prophet Jesus was, was all about, which is ministering to the poor. You know, you've got, what's his name, Osteen, the televangelist, saying, you know, God wants you to be a winner, not a whiner. You know, I mean, <laughs> the prosperity gospel, it's a, it's a heresy. So... Are we talking about something that's eclipsing and in decline? Uh, I think the
4: answer is yes and no. I I have a a colleague and friend, Ender Whitehead, who's made the case very persuasively that uh, in terms of numbers, there is decline. It's an aging group. It's a group who is having a hard time recruiting new people. It's also a a group that's having a hard time, as you say, uh, keeping its young uh, in the flock. And so, uh, the, the religious nuns, those who are unaffiliated with religion, are the fastest growing religious group or non-religious group in the United States. However, uh, two, th- two things and two reasons I think that we should not uh, consider this group to be one that will be going away anytime soon. One, they consider themselves to be the founders of the country, and they are overrepresented in our government. 88% of Congress is Christian in some way. Now, not all those are evangelicals, but the point is is that they are overrepresented in the halls of our government from Congress to mayoral seats uh, and everything in between. Uh, And so the amount of power and money that has been invested in the infrastructure of American politics on the part of this demographic is immense. Uh, Number two, white Christian nationalism, as I maintain in the book, is is more than church attendance. It's it's now a cultural identity. There are people who don't attend church who call themselves Christians or evangelical because they're telling a story of who they are. When they say evangelical, they, they mean someone who's conservative and who supports certain uh, policies when it comes to immigration, certain approaches to abortion, certain understandings of the founding of the country and where it went wrong and how we can fix it. And so that story continues, even if uh, some of the measures like church attendance show us that uh, it seems as if Christianity on the whole is in decline in the United States.
0: So in the last couple of minutes, I've often talked to religious scholars and religious figures on uh, Christmas Day. I had the co-founder of the Poor People's Campaign on to talk about the message of the Prophet Jesus uh, on the birthday of the Prophet Jesus and uh, how it has, has strayed, shall we say. So I've often invoked the notion of where's the religious left. So just in closing, can there be a religious left in this country? In other words, the values of white Christian nationalism are so horrific, and you've, you've got regimes like the Ayatollahs in Iran. We've seen what theocracy does. We've certainly seen what theocracy d- does with the Taliban on a daily basis. So I'm just wondering whether there can be a countervailing movement to basically put these people in their place because they're heretics, really.
4: There can be, and I think we saw some of that in uh, the 2022 midterms. Uh, I, I think some of the things that will are a challenge on that front are the fact that the religious left is smaller and it's more diverse. And, and don't get me wrong, anyone listening, I think diversity is, uh, is a great uh, uh, value of American democracy and American society. But diversity means uh, coalition building. It means a lot of work, uh, getting on the same page in cooperation. And that work is invaluable. It's rich. It's part of what makes the human tapestry uh, so wonderful. However, the other side trades in uniformity. It trades in conformity. And so the ability to mobilize politically is a much uh, straighter line when it comes to the right or even the religious right, as it may on the religious left. And so we saw that in the, the two thousand twenty midter- 2022 midterms. We saw Americans vote for democracy as the kitchen table issue. We saw groups from... Uh, you know, mainline Christians to reform Jews, to uh, Asian American Buddhists, and so on and so on and so on, uh, realize the threats that are being posed to our democracy. Uh, and those continue. And so the organizing, the marching, uh, the activism needs to continue uh, as we continue to face uh, threats to our republic going forward.
0: Well, Dr. Bradley and Ishii, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Bradley Anishi, who's a scholar of religion and the co-host of Straight White American Jesus podcast. His writing has been published in the New York Times, the LA Review of Books and Religion and Politics, among other outlets. And he's the author of a number of books, the latest of which is out tomorrow, Preparing for War, the Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism and What Comes Next. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The
2: guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine